Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, good morning, guys. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. We're going to be in uh, 1 John today. So you guys want to try to locate that in your Bibles. It's kind of a tough one to find. It's going to be toward the back of the Bible. If you hit the book of Revelation, you've gone a little too far. Just back up a few pages and you'll find uh, the three uh, letters of John to the church. So, I've got to find it myself. So, So one of the themes John deals with in his epistle, his first epistle, is this theme of love. Uh, You'll see this this current kind of run through the book. Uh, He addresses it in chapter 2. He addresses it again in chapter 3. And then it kind of all culminates in chapter 4, where we hear this famous expression, God is love. So I want to be looking at that today, focusing on love, its definition, how we should understand it as Christians. Now, the world tells us a lot about love. You turn on the radio, you listen to any kind of music, movies, uh, cinema, television. Love is a common theme. A lot of times we get it wrong, however. So that's why we need to go to God's word if we want to try to get it right. You know, we can try to define love. You know, I would say love is, is, has something to do at least with kindness, right? Maybe goodness, you could throw that in there. Altruistic self-sacrifice is probably an element of, of love. Tenderness, care, the list could go on. Now, there was a theologian by the name of Peter Kreeft who said that love is more like measles than like math. What he meant by that is you don't study love. You don't study it, you catch it. Right? You don't analyze it and understand it until you've actually lived with it, until you've experienced it, until you've you've given it. Now, I think I got my first real glimpse into what love is when my children were born. When Amy and I were expecting our first child, I was scared to death. Honestly, I didn't know if I could be a good father. I was anxious about the whole thing. But I remember when our daughter was born, holding that tiny little bundle in my arms for the first time. I think I caught a brief glimpse into the kind of love that God has for his children. I think I started to understand what God's love might actually look like for me. See, my daughter had done absolutely nothing to earn my favor in any way. Right? She hadn't responded to me in any really positive way. She was a newborn infant. Right? She brought nothing with her into the world. She brought no money, no wealth, no value in that sense. She was just there. And yet I would have done anything for her. That was my first real glimpse into the kind of love that I think God has for us. But I would just put God's love on a, a bigger scale, right? So in, in John's first epistle, he tells us a lot about love, but John doesn't give us a how-to manual. He doesn't tell us how to love, necessarily. He simply points us to God. He points us to the source of love. He tells us if you want to understand love, you need to understand God. 
If you want to know love, you need to know God. If you want to love well, you need to emulate God. You need to walk with God. See, if we want to get it right, we need to go to the source. So let's go ahead and turn then to 1 John chapter 4 and read what John has to say here about love, the love of God. We're going to read verses 7 through 21. And can I invite you all to stand as we read God's word this morning? At Bergen Park Church, we believe that this is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. We take this book very seriously. 1 John 4, 7-21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Let me pray for us before we get into, into this message. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, discernment, understanding as we study your word, that you would help us to walk in love, in your love, to demonstrate love for each other. Lord, help us to put this word into, into action for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I wonder if any of you had a hard time following the reading this morning. I've got to tell you, I had to read this passage numerous times before it really started to make sense. John tends to kind of work in circles, right? He keeps looping back to the same 
kinds of issues. So his, his syntactic kind of rhetorical style is a bit complicated here. But at the center, I think, of these concentric loops is this idea that God is love. So if you want to know anything about love's origin, about its purpose, about its application, you've got to go to the source. You've got to start with God. Now, the Greek word for love that's employed here by John is the word agape. It appears 29 times in various forms in this brief section of Scripture. There are four words for love in the Greek language. Um, they mean different things, familial love, uh, brotherly love, erotic love, but here we're speaking specifically of divine love, agape. Now, I'm not going to walk through each instance of this term in the, in the text this morning um, because there's, there's too much there, but I do want to direct us to some ways that John helps us understand what divine love is and what it isn't. So John's insistence on understanding and practicing love is truly rooted in the fact that if we get love wrong, it's because we've gotten God's love wrong. And when we get love right, it's because love finds its ultimate foundation and application in God, in his character. So again, there's a lot we could focus on in this text, and I was telling someone earlier I could probably preach three or four sermons on this passage alone, but I do want to focus in on a couple of, of insights. First, I want to look at the Trinitarian nature of this passage. So, in other words, how God the Father in love sent His Son to save God's beloved children. Okay, this is about the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working out our salvation in love. And then next I want to examine how God in His love sent the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to transform God's beloved children into people of love. So, let's start with God is love. A well-known phrase, we've all heard it before, it appears two times in this passage. And the fact that God is love is probably one of the most exciting and comforting statements recorded anywhere in the Bible. God is the source of love. This is exciting because God's love for us is not motivated by anything we do or anything we've done, right? It's motivated simply by who He is. It's exciting because God's love is unconditional, right? It seeks the highest good of the beloved. It's exciting because it's a, a giving love that's rooted in total commitment and care. See, God doesn't love us because we add some value to Him on the basis of our contribution to His divine purpose and plan for the world. No, God's love actually creates intrinsic value in us. If for any reason you doubt that God loves you, then look no further than verses 9 and 10. John says, I can prove that God's love is rooted in his commitment and care because God sent his only son to save the world, that we might live through him. John says, I can prove that God's love is unconditional because this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. In other words, God loved us so much that God the Son allowed himself to bear divine wrath against sin in our place. 
So if we want to understand God's love, we need to get comfortable with this word propitiation and take some time on, on this one, okay? Now, the concept of propitiation is rooted in the Old Testament and in the sacrificial system where a, a ram or a goat would be slain as an atoning offering or sacrifice for the sins of God's people. Now, the idea behind the sacrifice is that it would appease the wrath of God against the sin of the people. Now, some people might think, okay, well, that's uh, an idea that's rather quaint or, or primitive, maybe a bit antiquated, and even barbaric. Sacrificing to the gods. Who does that? But the propitiation sacrifice actually tells us something about who God is. This is not just for us. This is a window into God's character. See, it tells us that God is just, that God is holy, that he's loving, he's compassionate, he's gracious. All of these things converge in this idea of propitiation. It tells us that a just judge does not simply let the guilty walk free nor does a merciful judge savagely and blindly condemn the guilty. You see, at the cross, the judge became the recipient of wrath and the giver of love. See, this isn't about divine child abuse where the father beats up on his son on the cross. Remember, God is Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. As a loving God, Jesus Christ... And I'll say that again so that you understand where I'm going here. As a loving God, Jesus Christ himself willingly took our place of punishment. As a holy God, Jesus himself willingly displayed his wrath against sin. Okay, redemption is about Father, Son, and Spirit working out our salvation in perfect unity. So righteous wrath happens when divine holiness and divine love converge. That's what wrath is. Theologian Don Carson said that if you want to understand righteous wrath, look at the cross. If you want to understand divine love, look at the cross. See, like a father or mother holding that newborn infant child who's done absolutely nothing to deserve love, has produced nothing of value, God holds us in his arms because that's the kind of God he is. See, God doesn't fall in love with us. God doesn't fall in love with us. He is love. He doesn't recklessly or passively love us. He loves us intentionally. His love actively chooses us, actively saves us. Agape love comes from the very center of his being, this is why when you go to Ephesians chapter 1, you read that before the foundation of the world, before the beginning of time, in love, he predestined us. That's strong language. God's love is active. It's directive. Now, here's where we get things wrong. The fact that God is love does not imply or entail that love is God, okay? The fact that God is love does not entail that love is God. Now, we sometimes think that love is God. And if love is God, then love defines who God is. And when love defines who God is, we actually end up with an undefined love. 
Our starting point is it's the wrong place. You see what I mean? The starting point should be God, not love. And so who defines love then? Well, we do, right? So I think, well, love is about warm feelings. So God must be about warm feelings. I think that God is about romantic feelings for anyone and everyone I want. So God must be about blessing any and all romantic expressions that I want. And so on. You see the problem. I'm going to get slightly political this morning. Um, Have you seen these rainbow-colored political signs that have shown up en masse in people's yards over the last year? These signs are ubiquitous in certain neighborhoods. And the sign I'm referring to says something like this. There are various forms of this particular sign, but it says something to the effect of, in this house we believe black lives matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love, kindness is everything. Your neighbors have one of these in their yard, maybe you have one of these in your yard. Now understand that My goal here is not to pick on each one of these statements because I do understand that when interpreted right, there's a lot of truth here, okay? And I want to be honest about that. But this grouping of vapid aphorisms and bromidic platitudes does not do justice to some very complex issues, okay? This idea is grounded not in a biblical worldview, but in secular humanism. There's a little bit of Marxism in there. There's some philosophical constructivism. There's a lot of stuff that drives this. So these statements may seem true, and they may seem innocuous, but there's a lot of baggage uh, beneath them. Again, I don't want to go into all the details here. The one I want to pick on in particular is love is love. Okay, so as Christians, I think we don't want to blindly adopt these platitudes, nor do we want to blindly reject them. We need to take time to carefully evaluate what we see in the world, okay, to look at it through a biblical lens, okay? So love is love. Let's take a look at that. You can take the the sign down from the uh, jumbotron. Let me interpret for a moment what this means when we say love is love. What it means is there are no real moral foundations beyond what is constructed by the majority according to our natural inclinations, probably based on evolutionary biology. Meaning that any sexual practices you desire, that you feel inclined toward naturally, or that you can conjure for your own pleasure should be celebrated by the interpretive community and accepted with no questions asked. That's what that means. Love is love. Now, you can't argue with feelings, right? We take our natural longings, we define them as love, and then we bless them because love is love, and love is God, and God is love, and God loves love. And by the time we're finished with it, we've left love completely devoid of all spiritually and and emotionally nutritive content. That's the problem. John Bon Jovi would be disappointed to know that we give love a bad name, right? (laughs) Some of you got that. (laughs) 
so if you think love is love, here's the thing. If you think love is love, you're going to be sorely disappointed, right? Some expressions that we call love are honestly sinful. We need to be honest about that as Christians. Some expressions that we call love are unhealthy. See, when we follow our fallen human hearts, love as we define it will fail us sooner or later. The Bible gives us something better. God is love. And God's love purposefully saves us from our own self-destructive sin. In his love, he created us. In his love, he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden and fellowshiped with them. In his love, he spared their lives, right, though they didn't deserve it. He clothed them in his love. He allowed them to live a long life in his love. In his love, he promised them a Messiah, a Savior, who would restore them. In his love, he chose a people from among their offspring and blessed those people. In his love, he brought a Savior from those people to save the world. In his love, he sent Jesus Christ, who abnegated himself in order to be the propitiation for sin. In his love, he restores broken, sinful, rebellious, hurting people. Aren't you thankful that love isn't love, but that God is? So the second major current that runs through this passage is that God's love transforms us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We see this particularly in verse 13. God, in his love, sent the Spirit, gave us the Spirit to transform people into into people of love. Now, there's a direct correlation here between God's nature and God's salvific action. There's a direct correlation between God's love for us and our ability to love one another. One commentator put it this way. If we are God's children, then love is in our spiritual DNA. Right? Just as a father or mother would pass their genetic material into their children, so too we receive Love is part of our spiritual DNA. Those who are born of God, verse 7, live in his love. See, when the Holy Spirit regenerates us according to the will of the Father and we accept by faith the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we are made to experience the fullness of God's redeeming love, a love that drives out fear, fear of death, fear of punishment, of judgment, And we are able then to receive and give love as God has given it to us. Real love, true love. The closest I can get to capturing John's reasoning in this section, and this is just kind of the way I think through syllogisms and logic. If God is love, then God loves the unlovable. If God loves the unlovable, then the unlovable become his beloved. If the unlovable have become his beloved, then the beloved can love God. And if the beloved can love God, then the beloved can love one another. God is love, therefore, the beloved can love one another with the love of God. It it makes sense. So when John says we need to love one another, he's talking here about the church, right? He's talking to you. He's talking to Christians. Now, I'm not sure this is an official commentary on John chapter 15, but it seems that John in his epistle is commenting on Jesus 
and his, his talk with his disciples in John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. So Jesus, in John 15, had told his disciples that those whom he had chosen would bear a lasting fruit of love, rooted in God's love. And this love would serve as a witness to the world. Now, the challenge here is that loving your family is hard work at times. Loving the church is hard work. We've all been there. Go back to the first century. Think about the disciples, 12 men from the same culture, shared culture, shared language, shared society, came from a very small geographical area. They knew each other well. There were times they couldn't stand each other. Do you remember the time when John and James and their mother go to Jesus and say, may it be that one of my sons sits at your right hand and the other at your left when you go into your kingdom? What was the response of the other disciples? They were indignant, it says, with James and John. I have to imagine John and Peter and others had a hard time with Matthew, a tax collector, a collaborator with the Romans. Think of James having to put up with Peter when Peter made all those bad judgment calls, which he did again and again through the Gospels. Think of Andrew having to love Thomas when Thomas is doubting Jesus. We know that Paul and Peter had their problems in Galatians where Peter was refusing to eat with the Gentiles, showing racial favor to the Jews. He had to be rebuked by Paul. These were the disciples of Jesus Christ. They had their disputes. They had their problems. They had to work at loving one another. Now, I'm going to speculate that it might actually be slightly easier to love people out in the world sometimes than it is to love people in your own home, to love people in your own church. It's easy to go out and serve people and then withdraw to the comfort of your home. But when the conflicts and the annoyances arise with the people that you see week after week, that's hard. Right? These are the people you serve with. These are the people you worship with. Sometimes we can't stand each other, and yet we're called to love one another with the love of Christ, to respond to our brother and sister with tenderness and with care, with forgiveness. In fact, John tells us that our tenderness and care for our brothers and sisters is actually a sign that we are truly abiding in God and in his love. This is a powerful witness to the world. Now, when I was planting a church in Lyon, France, uh, we spent about 10 years on that project, planting this church. Um, slowly, the church grew. People were coming. People would come and go. A lot of people passed through the doors of that little church. One of our most faithful attendees was a man named Denis. Now, Denis was the first person to show up whenever we unlocked the door. He was always there waiting to be let in. We'd unlock the door, he'd come in. He was the last person to leave. Every Sunday, same thing. Denis had some serious problems, uh, developmental issues, um, a lot of junk in his past. He was obsessed with public transportation. He would talk about the metro and the tram and the bus. That's all we talked about, actually, for five or six years that I knew Denis. That's what he talked about. He always wore the same 
dirty black boots, the same dirty red shorts, the same dirty white t-shirt, and sometimes if it was cold enough, he'd wear a dirty black jacket as well. Um, his face had sores on it, his hair was matted, he didn't have a nice appearance. Denis was our unofficial greeter at the church. So anyone, everyone who passed through the doors of that church would be waylaid by Denis, and he would share with them all he knew about public transportation. <laughs> For five or six years, same story every Sunday. Denis was dirty, he reeked of body odor. I remember giving him a ride a couple times, and there was that smell that kind of lingered in the car. I learned pretty quickly at that church I couldn't ask rhetorical questions from the pulpit because Duny would actually answer. He'd start a conversation. He'd turn it to public transit. We'd talk. We had to quiet him down so we could finish the sermon. There were times early on I, I would get frustrated with Duny. Our elders, people in the church, we'd get frustrated with Duny, but we made a commitment. We're going to welcome him. We're going to love him. We're going to let him be here week after week. And when you're a pastor, sometimes you kind of want to know why people are at your church. So you get to know people a little bit. Why are you here? And people would respond. You know, the typical answer is, well, we like the preaching. We like the community. It's close by to where we live. It's convenient, that sort of thing. But one thing we would hear over and over again consistently is, we came back because we saw your love for Denis. Loving people is hard sometimes. That was convicting for me. And, and you realize we have problems in our own churches. This isn't just a, a problem in this little church in Lyon. It may not be that kind of guy, but it might be a, a dispute, a problem, a conflict in your church with a brother, with a sister. So how do we love someone when we're not sure we even like them? How do we do that? Well, I think there's only one way to do it, according to John, here in 1 John chapter 4. We need to know God, right? See, we can take certain steps toward getting along with people. We can give them the benefit of the doubt, and I think that's a good thing to do. Start there. Give people the benefit of the doubt, right? We can assume the best about people. I think that's something we can do. We can go out of our way to be kind. All of that stuff can help. But I think ultimately, we can't love people simply by trying harder. See, closing your eyes and concentrating really hard on warm, fuzzy feelings is not going to make you a more loving person. See, we don't start by focusing on our love. We've got to start by paying closer attention to God's love. See, we can try to love people out of our own resolve, but until we grasp how long how wide, how high, and how deep is the love of God, till we get that, we will never understand love. See, we can try to sacrifice for others, but until we understand the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us, our love will be incomplete. See, we love not because of who we are, we love because of who God is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this love, a love that created us, 
a love that sustains us, a love that redeems us. Lord, we ask that you would, in your grace and mercy, help us to walk in that love, to understand what true, real love is. Not the world's definition of love, not political definitions or philosophical definitions, but what true love is that comes from you. A God who gave his son to be the savior of unworthy people, sinful people. Lord, help us to walk in the truth of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we, we're going to be celebrating communion today. So hopefully you've picked up the elements. There are some left at the back of the sanctuary if you'd like to grab those. And before we get to the communion, let me just read to you what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives us some instruction for understanding the purpose, the nature of, of communion. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So just a couple of things on this passage. The first thing is, communion is for believers. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is an opportunity to publicly profess that faith among the body, okay? It's an opportunity to hold each other accountable in a way. So when you take communion, you are saying yes to Jesus Christ. You're publicly declaring your faith in him. The second thing we see in the passage that Paul is pretty clear on is that we do not want to take communion in a hypocritical way. Because when you've taken those elements, you are professing faith in Jesus Christ. But then if you deny him in your words and deny him in your actions, you're living in a hypocritical way. So Paul warns us, he says, be, be careful with this. This is a solemn thing. This is a grace that God has given us. It's a spiritual food nourishment that sustains us as a church. So let's reflect on that reality as we prepare our hearts to receive the communion together. So we'll take these elements together. Jesus started with the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
then Jesus took the cup. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.